AM and FM, New York. those evil people out there who would feign to record this theme. I'm ahead of these little wise guys out there. For those of you who have been wondering for years what the name of my theme is, you ready? It is a Viennese version of the Happy Birthday song. Bring it up. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mitch. Happy birthday, you detective. Happy birthday to you, Ashka. Happy birthday, Mitch. Bring it up there. Bring it up there. Bring it up Life is exciting, isn't it? Just fantastic. Sometimes it's so exciting you can hardly stand feeling your teeth itch out there in the darkness. You ever had a furry thumb? Oh, Wowie, we're drowning in mediocrity. Yes, there's no question about it. We will all be undone by knaves. Not be a knave, gang. Of course, the full expression is that we will be undone by fools and knaves. I carefully left the fools out. Oh, together now. be pursued all the way to eternity with this idiotic phrase? Must I be pursued forever, forever, altogether? Back on the air here. We do this once in a while to clear away all the dust from all the preceding radio programs. Clear the uh, ashes out of the pit here. Get rid of all the stuff here. There's a couple of old Martha Dean commercials. Good evening. Let me get rid of this stuff here. Hey, is. Hey, uh, uh. Hey, just a minute. Uh, I'm Walt. Now, why doesn't somebody say something about. About uh, Al McCann leaving so many of these old striped bass of his around here in the studio. Hello, 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 test, hello. We're losing control here. This hello, this thing is turned on. Hello, what's the matter? There we are. There, we're back in business. All this old 
All right, there we are. Gee whiz, what a night it's exciting. <laughs> Nothing worse than to have the transmitter turned off in the middle. You know, that, that reminds me of... Uh, it's like, hello, hello, testing, 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 and testing. Did you see what one of the local daily newspapers described my, my show as recently? Witty divertissement. <laughs> George, <laughs> we're coming along, aren't we, Walter? There, right, George? Hello, testing, testing, rye commentary on our times. That's the way the New York Times handles it. The Post ignores me completely. I'll never forget the day that this guy, this uh, this announcer, on one of the, uh, it was a baseball announcer, as a matter of fact, and somehow he was he was giving a commentary on something that had appeared in the New York Post, and he had the greatest Freudian slip I've heard in years. He said, yeah, folks, the New York Post said, <clears throat> uh, the the uh, New York Post, I mean the New York Post, friends said. <laughs> oh, they keep sneaking out, you know, all kinds of the way life is. It's exciting. It's fantastic. I see a note here from uh, San Francisco. Would uh, any of you like to hear me do my famous version of the After You've Gone? Well, large numbers of angry lady lawyers keep writing, Dear Mr. Shepherd, unless you cease and desist immediately, my husband Charles and I won't listen to your oh, rotten radio program any longer. Well, George, it's not easy doing a rotten radio program. You've no idea. You know, you find yourself from time to time on the radio slipping into doing good radio programs and then trouble. Oh, boy. Notes from the management. Oh, uh, I'm uh, speaking from notes from the management. I suppose did they say, uh, where's that little thing I brought in here tonight? Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Oh, yes, here it is. It's, it's a little uh, advertisement. Here's where you really see the real stuff, you know, down at the bottom of the, down at the bottom of the newspapers where it tells little things that you can buy, like uh, 50 art photos. Uh, must be over 21 for art students, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, <laughs> Here's one that says, uh, teen radio DJ kit, fun at home. Uh, parties, hops, complete kit for the teen radio DJ kit includes radio disc, program log, eight humorous commercials, participation game, news format, and a fun newscast. Sick world. <laughs> I can see people sitting around doing fun newscasts about Vietnam. This is Eric Silveride here, and in Vietnam today... And the crowd is roaring and rocking. Fantastic. Well, that's all part of the world. Uh, this, this, uh, everything is everything is showbiz today in the yard wide. And um, I, uh, I just wonder how many generals. You know, when a guy when a guy puts on a general suit in the morning, do you think he feels like he's putting on a, a costume? Do you think he feels like he's slipping into costume? You know, uh, because this this is going to be a big thing. You know, uh, you go down to the toy departments. Have you noticed the toy departments have all kinds of costumes now? that kids can wear. And, of course, the old days of kids wanting to be a cowboy or an Indian, that's long since passed. You can get little analyst suits now. Uh, you can get an Ed Sullivan suit. They, it comes with this rubber face with the dewlaps that hang down, you know, a little fringe on the bottom of it there. And a complete list of tonight's big shoe, including Pearl Bailey and a visit for Eliza Minnelli and the Rolling Stones. Uh, it's a very good... Uh, Thing I think a little kid going around there, but playing Ed Sullivan <laughs> kind of adds a little spice to the grand concourse there. And uh, you can get a little milk Cayman kit, and you come complete with a bunch of bad jokes and a worried look. And uh, you can get uh, you can get an Alan King kit, and uh, that uh, 
Of course, I, I think one of the best uh, costumes, of course, is a TV panel guest costume, in which you come with that bland look. And uh, it's, uh, you're, you're given a whole series of rejoinders to Ava Gabor, who uh, sits next to you. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they have a record of, of either Jolie, Ava, or Zsa that you can play on your LP stereo, and the kid can sit there and make funnies and pretend like he's Johnny Carson. Uh, the heroes of today, let's face it. Why, it's a, <laughs> it's a sad thing how far we've come down from General Custer all the way down to uh, Burt Parks and uh, his crowd. Now, uh, we have a thing here, uh, for those of you who wonder about this radio scene, uh, I, a little thing from San Francisco says, Disc jockey Frank Fry is hoping to get into uh, Disc jockey works the overnight show at KFOG, Fog. Here in San Francisco, he left the studio Tuesday night to investigate an unusual noise. The door slammed shut behind him, and the KFOG announcer found himself locked out in the cold and couldn't get back in the radio station. And he was running the radio station. There was no one else there. Listeners then began to hear a blank sound coming from KFOG. Uh, let's put it this way, even blanker than the usual blank sound that came from WKFOG. Telephone police, they couldn't get the door open, and four hours later, they finally found the disc jockey running around town trying to get a key. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you, I, I, I don't know whether I've ever told this story on the air uh, about uh, the wildest moment that I have ever known personally in radio. It did not occur to me. Uh, it occurred to a friend of mine, and I happened to be present, or at least I was in the next block when it happened, and I rushed to the scene immediately when it broke. And uh, I was there to record it in my own my own brain so that forever and ever, no matter what they say, I saw it and ain't no denying it. Now, uh, my own personal, uh, my own personal uh, definition of hell, everybody, you know, John Paul Sartre, there been a lot of people who have, uh, incidentally, John Paul Sartre is probably the most literate whiner of our century, fantastic whiner. Uh, oh, yeah, he's a Holden Coffee with a French accent. And he's a grown-up holding Caulfield. <laughs> and uh, a lot of overtones there, philosophical and religious overtones. But nevertheless, ah, gee whiz, what can I do? Uh, it, all, it all fits, and it's a yard wide, and sometimes it scratches at the knees. You've got to be careful. It has a tendency to shrink in the automatic washers. Now, uh, uh, one time on this guy, seeing I'm walking around town, and, and uh, I'm uh, just out of the army and on... Uh, you want to hear what my own personal version of hell is? You're curious about that? Everybody has his own. Well, my own personal uh, concept of it, if you say to me, you know, Shepard, you are going to the netherworld. Shepard, a person of your rotten, sick, distorted mentality, a person with your perverted, ridiculous, idiotic values, you're going straight to the netherworld, you are. I've had an aunt. You know, I had an aunt that spoke only in uh, various... Uh, Quotations of one kind or another. Her entire speech consisted of maxims. Uh, she had all kinds. She had maxims taken from the Sears Roebuck summer catalog, uh, usually in the plumbing department. Uh, she had uh, she had maxims. Yes, she she spoke. She'd never had, as far as I know, an original thought in her entire life. When it rained, she said, "Oh God, is weeping tears." She didn't say it's raining out. That's too. Uh, that's a little bit too uh, too uh, original for her, and and she was always cosmic about everything she had to say, 
And uh, whenever, whenever I was, you know, knocked over the oatmeal or yelled or busted a window or threw a fit or threw my shoe at the radio or anything, you know, like, you know, the kid. By the way, do uh, you know that that some big organizations in the major cities, including Japan, Japan, you know, uh, is very far advanced of us in many things. First of all, they've got they've got about a 400 mile an hour railroad, which will come as a fantastic surprise to any of you guys who ride the Long Island Railroad. You wouldn't believe they could make them that would go that fast, you know. Uh, listen, the Long Island going downhill with the wind behind it, pursued by a tidal wave, wouldn't go much more than 27 miles up. They must have a fantastic governor on this thing. But the Japs got a railroad that goes, I'll tell you, it, it, it goes whistling through the countryside. And they say that sometimes for an hour and a half after that, the Yokohama special goes through, the air is full of chickens, peasants, automobiles, and bowling balls. Just floating down like a like a fallout, you know. It goes through. Well, uh, now I don't I don't know whether any of you ever grew up next to very fast trains. Uh, as a kid, we had a train. We had an interurban train that went right through the middle of our town. Now, for those of you who know anything about the northern Indiana scene, you know that there are two trains that leave Chicago. One goes to northern Indiana. It's called the South Shore. The other would go up to the north side of of, uh, of Chicago and go on up through Milwaukee, places like that. That's called the North Shore. Well, these two trains combined probably averaged a speed of about 650 miles an hour. Now, they didn't do that in Chicago because they considered Chicago the real world. And these were all Chicago engineers. It was a Chicago railroad, you know. And they would go putting along like normal. And as soon as they'd get down to the outskirts of town, they would turn the crank open on this thing, and she would take off, and it looked like a, an orange lightning bolt. And it would go through the Indiana towns exactly like that, because they figured Indiana was just a big prop, and a lot of farmers and Indiana people out there, anyway, who cares? Life was cheap on the Indiana countryside. And uh, <laughs> they would come through Indiana, Walt, seriously, at... at uh, at the rush hour, about 5.30 in the evening, and that train, that train would go right down the middle of the main street, right down the middle of the main street of East Chicago, Indiana, at about 87 miles an hour. And I do not exaggerate. And you have never seen a guy trying to get out of the way of an 87-mile-an-hour electric train in his 32 Hudson. You never saw more excitement in your life. I'll tell you. And this baby, and it didn't even have gates, you know. You just hear the outskirts of the town. You just hear, everyone would know, see. About 5.30, they would all get itchy. Uh, that's all they would do. They would get itchy. They were like like animals, you know. The, 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 you know how the animals do? As soon as uh, dawn breaks, the animals begin to get itchy. They know that this is danger time. And as soon as it gets dark, they come out and go to the water holes, and they begin to make the scene big, you know. But as soon as dawn is sensed, they begin to feel it. They can smell danger in the air. Well, so it was with the Indiana residents of East Chicago, Indiana. 5.30, you'd see them. They're kind of a little funny. You'd see the, their skin would break out a little bit, and, you know, and you'd see a kind of a slack-jawed look and a little glazed look, and they would all be facing vaguely. They would be facing, they would be facing direction from which this train would come. Just instinctively, you know, like, like flowers face the sun, you know. They'd start facing that way, and I remember one day coming out of, out of this uh, sweet shop, Right on the main drag of East Chicago, Indiana, I'm about in second grade, something like that, and I got my hand full of full of root beer bottles and you know root beer balls, those little things that, and uh, I got a whole, <laughs> I got a, I got a, I had a spare pair. I was picking it up because we were having a formal party over the weekend. A spare pair of uh, wax teeth, uh, which I used. I, I wore those wax teeth all the way up through my twelfth year. You know those wax false teeth? You've seen those? They're very nice. It uh, added a lot to my embouchure. 
and uh, gave me an interesting fight. And I, I'm coming out of the sweet shop, see, and the man all of a sudden I go, whoo! It, uh, that's the kind of sound it would make, whoo! It would start coming down and coming down from the west, and whoo! It goes past, see, just like that. Well, everyone thought for a minute. Everyone thought for a minute it was normal. Yes, everything was everything was cool. And uh, they they begin to surge back out into the. They picked up the fist fights where they dropped them off, and the pool games continued on, and guys continued to spit, and you know how they do in Indiana towns. Until all of a sudden, uh, just just like that, Miss Mino began to descend on all of us. Um, <laughs> but don't, don't look at me. Miss Mino was a, was a school teacher in in uh, in second grade, and Miss Mino had gotten nipped by the South Shore. Uh, South Penn Special. Now, she hadn't actually gotten hurt. Miss Mino had gotten nipped. Now, Miss Mino was one of those ladies who was probably born wearing a corset. Uh, she didn't... Uh, this was before the days of uh, girdles. This was corset. She, she wore a corset. The kind that goes all the way about three and a half foot above your head, you know. And the kind that has little anchors on the bottom, has runners on the bottom, so you can push it along the street. And you could hear her creaking for blocks along as she came. And uh, it was like chain mail. And uh, Miss Miss Mino had sprung two or three mainstays in her corset, and uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, it was a, it was a wonderful sight. Nobody knew that Miss Mino really was a 274 pound lady. Everyone thought she was a little skinny lady, and she began to leak. Uh, this is W O R A M and F M New York, and uh, we'll be here for a while. This is uh, your friendly station, and uh, <laughs> family station, right, George? <laughs> <laughs> One big happy family here. And, uh, you you uh, want to know my... Well, that reminds me. I was going to tell you about my own personal version. Gee, why did W.O.R. say that remind me of my... Oh, gee whiz. Terrible thought. Uh, before we go any further, let's uh, go on with the Peugeot people here. If uh, you want to drive a car that will take you out of the way of any oncoming North Shore interurban electric trains, nippy-like, and that handles like a sports car and drives like a fiend... I would like to suggest the Peugeot. And uh, incidentally, please stop writing me letters on how to pronounce Peugeot. I know how it's pronounced. Uh, we are anglicizing it for the benefit of the klutzes out there, of which I am one. I must say, certainly, I'm the biggest hot dog root beer drinker you ever saw in your life. And uh, the Peugeot is a superb French automobile, and it has a sliding roof on it. And you guys have no idea how great sliding roofs are for making a quick getaway. I'll tell you, uh, uh, not only that, they're fantastically comfortable cars. They're spectacularly upholstered. And it's a car that is almost virtually trouble-free, and I say that personally. I drove one for five years, and it was the only time in my life, Walt, that I never had no trouble. Excuse the Jersey expression, no trouble at all. Of course, the car didn't want but that's another story. Uh, it's an excellent machine, and you'll see it at 2 East 46th Street. And by the way, 70,000 miles to a set of tires on this baby. That's more than most guys get on anything. Uh, and now, uh, let's get... <laughs> How many miles do you expect to get on you, friend? <laughs> just a suggestion, just a question. You know, I, hey, somebody sent me a fantastic uh, thing. Uh, I hadn't seen a copy of this since I was a mere stripling. Some guy sent me a copy of a magazine that probably more than anything else was one of the, was one of the molding forces in my early life. Now, you know, you, you always read authors, they're always, uh, uh, whenever they interview them uh, in the New York Times magazine, somebody, some official guy interviews uh, uh, Somerset Maugham, or they interview Hemingway, or they interview, you know, some big, some big 
uh, important type, they always talk about early influences in their lives. And if you noticed, uh, almost all these guys were influenced by fantastic people like Rambo. They were influenced by people like Melville and Conrad. Uh, some guys even said they were influenced by the Old Testament. You know, really fantastic. That's somehow tying yourself in with the infinite. And hardly ever anybody admits that he was influenced by the Montgomery Ward catalog. That's where his literary style came from, you know, <laughs> the real things that really molded us. And I, I've, uh, I've constantly wondered, you know, when, when somebody's going to admit what, what, really, uh, what really formed him. Well, well, I realized, I discovered like a thunderbolt, uh, guys can, have been writing me for a long time, said, Shepard, where did that, that peculiar, ridiculous style of yours develop? Uh, how is it that you have developed such a disjointed, uh, such a uh, fist-fighting style, which uh, seems to be at one and the same time limping badly, the leaking water, and attempting at the same time to climb into the clouds? Now, how did you discover this this uh, this this bad system that you've got here of doing whatever it is you do, the articles you write and all that? And I have been at a loss. I I try. At first, I said, well, I was influenced by not Herman Melville, nor Ahab. I was influenced by the whale. See, in that, in that, when I read that, when I read Melville's Moby Dick, you know, I, I, it's terrible. I, I automatically, uh, I empathize with the whale. And ever since that time, you know, there have been one succession of Ahab after another chasing me around the living room, you know, with spears and lances and all kinds of harpoons. Boy, did I tell you that Bob Smith almost got me with a harpoon shot on the 23rd floor the other day? Fantastic. I just got in the john before we went right through the water cooler, Walt. Fantastic. We got Ahabs all over the place here. And uh, I, I, uh, I did not, uh, I did not uh, see myself as Ishmael. Call me Ishmael. Uh, I, no, I didn't say. I didn't uh, automatically uh, identify with Ishmael. I read the Holden Caulfield. I did not identify with Holden Caulfield. I identified with the fat kid in the shower with the pimples. Uh, and uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, so uh, let's face it. There are two kinds of us. So all, all my life, I've been that way. And I. I realized last night, I'm looking through the mail, somebody sent me a copy of this magazine, and I realized that this was one of the great formative influences in my early life. And this magazine is no longer in existence. This magazine existed only for time, comparatively, historically speaking, friends. Uh, and this, <laughs> this magazine, nevertheless, was avidly read by roughly 22 million guys. At any, it had the greatest circulation of any magazine ever, I think, that was ever produced, put together in the United States. And incidentally, it was it was editorially put together just a few blocks away from where we're sitting right here now at 1440 Broadway. And the magazine, incidentally, had also a captive audience. It was a captive audience magazine. Now, I will award you the brass figure with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me the name of that magazine. And I am a cool 17. And every day before that magazine was about to come out, I am breaking out the cold sweat. I can hardly wait for it to come out. I could I, uh, just, you know, oh boy. And then it would arrive, and for blocks around, there'd be nothing but silence. There would be guys reading this magazine. And once in a while, you'd hear, <laughs> you'd hear an uproar, you'd hear uh, some guy falling down, hitting his head on the, on the floor, yelling and hollering, falling right out of the, you know, right out of the pad. Uh, he's, he's busting the gut. Because he's he's just read a fantastic thing in this magazine. This is not Mad Magazine. Oh no, believe me, this magazine went even further. That made Mad seem like the greasy kid stuff that it ninety percent of it is. I wish they'd turn out a true greasy kid stuff issue, and it it comes in a tube. 
that issue of Mad, and you squeeze it and <laughs> put it on your head. <laughs> but uh, but uh, seriously, do you know the name of this magazine? No, 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 no. This was way after Captain Billy's whiz-bang. No, it's had a captive audience and had the greatest audience of any magazine published in modern times. Now, remember what I've said. I'm, I'm serious. Had the greatest circulation, a true worldwide circulation. And I'll give you a little example of one of its pieces of humor. <laughs> there's two guys. <laughs> there's two. There's two guys. Uh, they're they're walking along, and, and you see a guy ahead of them, and uh, they're on an airfield. Ahead of them's walking along. He's got no head. And uh, the two guys. One says, "You know, he's a he's a uh, he's a propeller expert, except he's a little careless." Now, uh, <laughs> you think this is you think this is sick humor? Well, this was this was uh, this is the kind of stuff that was the formative influence in my early life. Well, I'm reading this magazine. I suddenly realize that this was one of the early driving forces behind what uh, what it is that I do. And I wonder how many guys seriously are around today writing novelists. Uh, I'm talking about all kinds of people who are now very official and important, whose attitudes were formed by this strange, wonderful, weird, fantastic, fascinating magazine. Its name, by the way, was One Word. One Word. And once in a while, I run into a guy who was on the staff of that magazine. And uh, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's like, uh, like hearing from Shaver. It's a strange thing. I, and one time, I'm in, a, I'm in a barracks one place, and there was a guy in the next barracks who became famous on that magazine. He became world-renowned. He was there for one day, and I, he wasn't famous then. And uh, a couple of us went past there, and he was, he was doing some of his work. He was sitting out in front there, and he had a big pad, and he was sketching. And the guy was Bill Malden. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, you don't know the name of that magazine, do you? It was a wild, swinging, fantastic magazine. But uh, nevertheless... Uh, these early influences, which we hardly ever admit. Now, if you're going to ask me who was my was an early influence uh, in my radio career, actually as a radio performer, uh, you know, all of us have influences. I don't care who we are. Uh, we we hear things that that we relate to. We we hear things that we like. We hear techniques used that that are are tremendously influential on us in a subtle way. Uh, I, I wonder, the average guy walking around, I wonder if he realizes how much he reflects Mr. Pittenger uh, in his second year in high school algebra class. Mr. Pittenger, who had a style that somehow, you know, seeped into him, that, that stone face and those steely eyes. Uh, I wonder, wonder how many of us can actually pinpoint the various influences that exist on us. Now, we're, we're a composite in, in, in America in the 20th century. We are a composite not of the early influences. You know, uh, a hundred years ago or more, uh, men were almost carbon copies of their families, their fathers. They really were. They were car this is the only influence they had. Uh, after all, there wasn't much travel. A person would live and grow, and, and he'd live in this house for 20 years with his mother and father or whatever it was, brother and that, and he became a composite of this family. And so when the kid was walking around years later, they could identify him almost completely by the way he walked, his family, the way he talked. He carried, he carried forward the whole peculiar way of his family's being. No longer. No longer, because you can live in a house with a parent, with a father and a mother, 
and be totally influenced by outside influences that have nothing to do with your mother and father. I wonder how... Yeah, yeah, that's right. I am, I'm hip, yeah. I wonder how many kids are young Gene Shepherds running around out there. <laughs> I'm serious. They've got a Jew's harp in one pocket, a kazoo in the other, and a smart remark on their mouth, and of course they usually have a fat eye. Uh, <laughs> now, I wonder. Now, now, when I was a kid, seriously, I used to listen when I was, I was about nine or ten. I was something in that area, about nine or ten. Uh, it's a radio show that you've ever, never heard me talk much about because it was not nationwide. Uh, you, you hear me talk once in a while about when I was a kid listening to Jack Armstrong or listening to stuff like Little Orphan Annie and stuff. But they were not the shows that influenced me. Any more than a kid today uh, reading uh, Smiling Jack is influenced by, he thinks, you know, it's uh, ridiculous, you know, he looks at it, and, eh, you know. But he's really influenced by something else again. Now, the, the actual influence I had in my life was a guy who used to come on the air in the middle of the afternoon, and I used to come running home from school like mad. He became a fantastic fan. All the kids around listened to this guy. Oh, no, no, no. This guy was about 7,000 times funnier than Soupy Sales, please. I'll admit, Soupy Sales is old, but I hate that old. And uh, anyway, I we used to come rushing home like mad from school to hear this show. And it came on at 3.30 and stayed on till 4.30. And it had a band, the whole scene, and this nut would appear on it. And he used to do takeoffs of high schools. The only guy I've ever heard do a literal takeoff on a high school. And one of the characters that he developed was Spike McBullet, a fearless high school coach. And he was the first high school coach that I ever heard of. When when they asked him, he says, "Spike, uh, we'd like to interview you uh, today. We're uh, we're uh, we're pleased to have on our program from Stegy Prep. I thought it was a great name for a high school. From Stegy Prep, the Stegy Prep Public Service Hour, which we bring to you every week uh, as a salute to uh, high schools everywhere. Stegy Prep. We have with us today in our auditorium session. We have Spike McBullet, the football coach." Who will give us a preview of this coming season? How does it look, Spike? Well, uh, actually, the way I see it, uh, by George, I believe that we're just going to push them all over the field this year. <laughs> oh, we're going to have so much fun. We've got the most beautiful uniforms this year, you know. Uh, they're designed by Dior, you know, this year. We've specially designed by Dior. And we've got this wonderful new center named Dickies. Well, he was the wildest... Uh, he was the wildest uh, Fire Island-type football coach I ever heard in my life. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he would come on. And then after, after Spike McBullet would, would report that the football team was going to have a fantastic season, he'd say, Goodbye, gang. Goodbye. This is old Spikey. I'll see you later. Oh, wow. That's fun. And he would disappear. And the announcer would say, incidentally, this man played all the parts. He played all the parts. He'd say, Now we hear from the Stegy Pep Band who will play their well-known version of uh, the Overture to 1812. And they had this band. It was, it was beautifully done. It sounded so much like the high school band that I played in. It was sickening. I mean, literally sickening. You know, I, I suppose you know that the first experiments in atonal music, the 12-tone scale, uh, was, were done in high school bands. Uh, attempting to play the <laughs> the octave system, but they nevertheless developed and worked out notes that had never at that point been written yet. And uh, this guy was one of the great influences in my early times and, and my work. And what's his name? And uh, by the way, he also influenced a large number of other people who worked in radio later, and still uh, his influence still remains. 
He's one of those unsung germinal influences. You know, quite often, the man who creates a whole school, a whole way of looking at things, is rarely the one who's admired. It's the guy who comes later and copies him that gets famous. Sad fact that there are many musicians today, uh, many musicians today who uh, owe what they are to guys who you'll never hear of. And I'm not talking about the unsung artists. It's just a fact. The true innovator is rarely appreciated. He's looked upon as a nut, and uh, he's, he's, uh, people don't like him. It's the later guys that come along who reap the harvest. This is invariably the case. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, <laughs> did anyone give you the name of him? Sure. All right. I'll, I'll award you the brass figure with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me the name of this great man, who, by the way, had a television show in the very early days of television that was one of the funniest TV shows ever seen by the eye of man. One of the funniest TV shows ever done. And later on, Ernie Kovacs became very famous doing a lot of the stuff that this guy had done and his earlier TV shows. Now, why he didn't get famous? Well, it's very simple. He was doing his work in the wrong part of the country. And he did not leave that part of the country. In short, when you want to become famous, you have to do it in New York or Hollywood. Or forget it. He did it in Chicago. And uh, <laughs> so forget it, Phil, you know. But uh, let me tell you this. A large number of people heard what he did and saw what he did and carried it to the each, uh, each coast and became famous doing a lot of the stuff that he did earlier. Uh, you know, speaking of, uh, of early influences, uh, you want to know what my private version of hell is? You want to know that? Well, uh, during one brief period in my career when I'm in, in high school, or rather just out of high school, actually, it was. I, let me think now. No, that's right. I was going to school, going to college at the time. I got a job in a radio station, and uh, it was a summer job, and it was a gigantic 50,000-watt station. This, this, this station, is, it's in the lower Middle West, and this station had one rule. If you guys think that you've ever dealt with maniacal egomaniacs, uh, this station had one rule, one rule alone, and that rule was this, that every station break, and the station breaks came every 15 minutes on this station, absolutely like clockwork, that on every station break, it was an unbreakable, inviolable station rule to mention the name of the radio station owner on every station break. And I don't mean uh, the RKO General Station, uh, nothing like that. No, no. So we had to give the name of the owner on, on every station break, and he would listen all over the country to make sure you did that. He would be down on his yacht off the coast of Florida, and he would call up long distance if he heard some guy not do that at 4 o'clock in the morning and fire him on the spot. Do you know that, the, that Western Union has a fire-by-telegram system? Uh, you, you've seen, uh, you've seen, uh, you've seen uh, congratulations by wire and send candy by wire. Well, a large number of you people don't know that they have a firing service, Western Union, and you can go down and you can check off out of 37 different types of firings, you can check off the one you want. They range all the way from uh, sweetness and light to pure three-letter obscenities, which are even the worst. These are even before uh, the, the Anglo-Saxon words. They go all the way back to obscenities that the cavemen used. Now, uh, <laughs> uh, this, this radio station had this had this the show that came on at midnight and it went till seven o'clock in the morning went all night long seven days a week and uh... this was uh, this was uh, uh, a pure record station that's all they played records and i would lock myself in this studio at five minutes until twelve and there was no engineer the engineer would be forty five 
rooms away from me. It was all done by remote control. 50,000 watt station, by the way. And I had this microphone in front of me. And on my left was a turntable. On my right was a turntable. In front of me was a sheaf of commercials that was 17 feet thick, all covered with plastofilm. You know, this plyofilm stuff, and I'd flip it. It was on a news. And, and there were the, this kind of commercial. Friends, have you envied those friends and neighbors of yours who go out to fish every week and come back with their car loaded with fish? Yes, the Gypsy Fish Bait Oil Corporation of Watkinsville, Tennessee, now makes available to those of you who really want to be fish killers. They fancy just... Oh, wow. Then I would flip it over and I'd say, Friends, do you have a loved one lying out in an unmarked grave tonight because you can't have them? The Rockdale Monument Corporation of Peoria, Illinois, now makes a beautiful simulated plastic walnut. Well, uh, that's the kind of stuff. And on each turntable, there would be 1,700 hillbilly records of guys... They didn't even they didn't even bother to sing through their nose. These guys usually sang through their left ear. And and they would come on. You are my sweet, I'm my only sunshine. I'd say, you've just heard Roy Acuff and the Delmore Twins. And now, folks, the Rockdale Monument Corporation, night after night, year after year, day after day. And my head, uh, I wore these earphones. I could hear nothing but the sound of, of twanging off off-tone Sears Roebuck guitars, the sound of jugs being blown, the sound of the Delmore twins singing, Oh, the Red River Melody, Hour after hour, I'm selling Bibles that glow in the dark. Hour after hour, I'm selling bulletproof notebooks that you carry around that keeps your, keeps your arrangements safe. Hour after hour, I'm selling little magic jukebox banks. Yes, friends, I'll never forget. Yes, friends, do you have trouble saving? Do you have trouble putting together a few measly dimes to send your children to school? Friends, the Magic Jukebox Bank Corporation of Dayton, Ohio, now makes available to you a plastic magic simulated jukebox. Every time you put a nickel, every time you put a dime, every time you put a 50-cent piece in this Magic Jukebox Bank, it plays a beautiful little melody just like a real jukebox friend, and it comes to you with an F-wallet autographed by Roy A. Cuff himself. Oh, wow. To me, that one day, if I ever arrive at the, at the, at the fiery gates, and, and, uh, and the devil there himself is welcoming me, he'll say, ha ha, come in. The door will swing open, and I'll be in Studio D. And throughout all eternity, throughout all eternity, it'll always be 3 a.m. I will just about to make a station break, and I will have just finished the Rockdale Monument commercial, and I will just about be ready to swing into a Delmore Twins record playing Old Rattler. Hour after hour after hour, eternity, eternity, oh, thy name is hell. Well, I, I had this friend. Now, you want to hear what happens sometimes to guys that, do, that go through this scene? Now, you hear these disc jockey shows, you know, and you hear this happy guy. You hear this guy saying, yes, it's WABC, friends, and now here we go. Thunga, thunga, thunga. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, all all the poor little klutzes that walk out there think that the that the guys that are doing this are just all Beatle fans. Oh boy, they sure love the Rolling Stones, and all they can hardly wait to do is to tell you what time it is, and that this is the old Big Charlie show, and that it's all you know. That's all they love. Well, after a while, these guys, you wouldn't believe it. You know, they talk they talk about oboe players. They always say that an oboe player, in the end, becomes a, it gets it gets addled. They will tell you, yes, playing the oboe produces scrambled eggs between the ears. Oh, yeah, they say that. They always say that this, uh, this also happens to old French horn players, that eventually they begin to hear buzzing in the ears, and they walk around humming Wagner. 
to themselves off key. Uh, even in their even in their sleep, they can't make the notes. Well, this happens to, to these guys that sit in front of these microphones and scream and yell for days after days. And I'm going to tell you a story that happened in a town which, for the purposes of editorializing, we will call Cincinnati. Of course, this is an obvious phony name. There's no such. No one would name a town that. But uh, there, there is a in the middle of Cincinnati. There is a tower. And that tower is the highest building in town. It's, it really is. It's about 85 stories high. My state building. It's a big, tall, sticks right up in the middle of Cincinnati. It's a genuine skyscraper. Well, way up there on the 85th floor is this radio station. And this was the Whoopi station in town. Uh, this was not W.O.R.'sville, you know, where you have friendly Martha Deans interviewing uh, lady authors who wrote books on cats. This is not the, the, the station where you have friendly John Gamblings who give you the time and, and they <laughs> chuckle with Peter Roberts and, you know, that, uh, that fantastic collection of Norman Luboff choir records. No, this is a, this is a, this is a different world. This was the Whoopi station, you know, where they have one rock and roll, one rock and roll record after the other and they have one wild station break, you know, the kind of stations with the, with the station breaks, you know, that are all sung. The stage man, oh, WABC, WABC, wow, 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 wow. You know, so, and they play it every 18 and a half seconds. They play their station break far more than they play anything else. And uh, this, uh, <laughs> this is the kind of station this guy was working in. And he was my friend. And every I was working down the street at another station. And every night we would meet at the restaurant and we would eat. And he would go his way and I would go my way. I went to the official radio station in town. You know, where they had official newscasters that came out. Oh, no, it was even more official than double. Oh, this was an official radio station. And he went to this other little peanut whistle down the street where they had nothing but records, and that was about it. And he was the only guy on duty, this guy. Every night he would be on from 8 o'clock until midnight playing all this whoopee stuff. And he was at the, remember, the 85th floor. And there were glass windows all around him. And he could see the city stretching on endlessly down there below him. And it was nobody else there. The transmitter was 20 miles out of town. And that was the only other guy who was in on his conspiracy with him. And he would be locked in there every night. And he would go on, and hey, this is old Ted. Yes, sir, this is the Big Ted Show, friends. The Big Ted Show coming here from 1230 on the Dow. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. One, two, three, on the Dow. That's one time now. They You know, that kind of a radio station. Well, one night, there was a general alarm put up. I got it. It came in on our ticker tape at about 9.57. There was a man standing on a window ledge, 85 stories above the street in Cincinnati, sailing great big transcriptions out over the town. And he was locked in. They couldn't get at him. One after the other. He's sailing them down there. And as he sails each one down, he was hurling obscenities that could be heard all the way down on the street. Well, 45 minutes later and 797 records later, they threw the net over him and took him down to AFTRA to form a, 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 a logical and formal complaint at a union about a disc jockey who got tired of playing his records and thought he'd just throw them out at the klutzes. Just throw them out there. And he was throwing them at the suburbs, at the kids. Take this, you knotheads! Throw! How about this? See if you can feel this one. Here come the Rolling Stones. Woo! And here they come. Here come the Delborn twins. Try this one. Woo! And they were sailing down on the city from 85 stories above. Yes, friends, there are more things in this world than meet the eye. Cabbages and kings and guys who forever and perpetually have their foot caught in an eternal door that never opens.